I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center. A celebration of the deeply weird and improbable rise of human beings in the first place, and an investigation of whether we can keep this all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Our guest today, Fringeware founder and member of the original cyberpunk revolution, John Lipkowski. We need to start challenging the operating system for the reality that we're in and its financial underpinnings. John is going to talk with us about how fighting for the weird became serious business. No, you're not insane. You're on Team Human. A people-powered program promoting positive, purposeful progress. Alliteration much? All those P's are to help remind you that you can subscribe to Team Human on Patreon. Get access to our Slack conversation, special audio and video, signed books and more. Go to teamhuman.fm and click on support or head straight over to patreon.com slash teamhuman. So I spoke at a conference a few weeks ago, or what I thought was a conference. It was really just a few billionaires around a table. <laughs> Human beings, but billionaires. And their concern, I thought it was about, you know, their shareholders or their money or this. Their real concern when push came to shove ended up being the apocalypse. And one of them finally asked me the question that was burning deepest in his heart or his mind, he wanted to know how can he maintain control over his security force after the apocalypse? In other words, he'd bought his land in 
you know, Anchorage or New Zealand or the middle of the desert, and he was building his facility and planning to have some kind of security force there to protect him from the motorcycle gangs or whoever is angry and wants his stuff. But how do you maintain a security force when your money might not be worth anything anymore? And so I started to play these uh, kind of walking dead-like scenarios along with him, like, well... I guess if you have them and their families there, um, then, you know, they're going to want to be part of your little mini nation state. Or I guess if you know the combination to the lock on something that they need or, uh, you know, maybe if you use robots instead of humans, then the robots will still obey you because, you know, they don't really need food and they're programmed to. And, you know, so... I kept playing these kind of scenarios with them, which was fun in a in a science fiction way. But eventually I told them the truth, which is you know, this this insulation equation that I've been uh, thinking about, which is that you can either you know think about how much do you need to do and plan in order to insulate yourself from the tragedies in the rest of the world versus what could you do to prevent those tragedies to begin with. In other words, you can earn a whole lot of money to insulate yourself from poverty and pollution and uh, GMOs or whatever's out there, or you could spend your time and energy making the world a place that you don't feel the need to insulate yourself from it. And, you know, as I spoke with them, I could tell they truly did want to be able to let go. They wanted to live in a world that welcomed them, in a world where they didn't have to build walls. But they were really weighing how much money do they need to protect themselves against extreme situations and social unrest, you know, versus could they spend some of that money? Could they let some of it go and promote the public welfare instead? And it was a real calculation I saw them making in their heads, and it was it was kind of bizarre. You know, so I let them know, you know, the the average CEO, you know, back in the in the fifties, you know, only made twenty times the average employee. It's the fifties and the sixties even, and today the average CEO makes two hundred and seventy one times the average employee. You know, and that's because in the old days, America in the 20s, in the 30s, 40s, or 60s even, CEOs couldn't imagine taking as much as they do now. You know, part of that, yes, is because tax laws were structured in a way where the wealthy paid 90% on earnings over the first million or so anyway. So the idea of earning more than that, why bother if you're going to pay 90% of it back? Yeah, they changed the tax code thinking, I guess, it would make America this more entrepreneurial place that everyone could now want to become a Zuckerberg or a Gates. It led to more billionaires, but way, way more poorer people. Everyone else got poorer. To that, the CEOs argued, they said, well, you know, the middle class, the middle class now lives better than kings did in medieval times. The middle class, they've got electric heaters, they have changes of clothes, they have running showers. And if you were a king in 1200, you didn't have any of that stuff. It's like, yes, maybe that's true in the sense they've got heat and the change of clothes, but maybe not in that they've got no security, no safety net. One illness, one fire, divorce, or a flood, 
can bring them to total bankruptcy and destitution. And even through their arguments, the CEO's common fear, the fear of these billionaires anyway, is really social unrest. That the division of wealth that they in part have created will become so severe that the tactics being used by marketers now to keep people afraid of one another and suspicious of authority will ultimately backfire. That's the way they understand Trump, you know, that the techniques of reality television and spectacle TV, making people suspicious of one another so they don't share stuff and so they buy more things for themselves and, uh, you know, not just meals ready to eat for the apocalypse, but their own lawnmower, their own house, their own keep up with the Joneses competitive uh, atmosphere, that that is backfiring in the form of uh, Trump and his followers. And so they showed me a set of scenarios that they had drawn up by global business network futurists. And all of these scenarios, I mean, these are people that you pay, you know, futurists that you pay tens of thousands of dollars to come in, listen to you, and then they draw up these usually four future world scenarios based on the things that you're talking about. And all of these future scenarios involved one form or another of walking dead post-apocalyptic violence. And they're not even thinking about how to position their companies for such outcomes, but themselves. They're spending their time and attention on plan B, on what to do when it all goes bad, which, at least according to them, is inevitable sooner or later. You know, they make money now by denying climate change, which will give them more resources to survive when climate change actually happens. So what did I tell them? Well, I told them that this is a stupid strategy for two reasons. One, it won't actually work. When climate change happens, when the social unrest happens, the the scenarios, the, the things that they think that they're building now that will protect them from future threats won't actually work because they're not predicting the real future threats that will come. They'll protect themselves against ticks and get bit by a mosquito. They'll protect themselves against social unrest and get whacked by a nuclear power plant. It won't actually work. You can't shield yourself from human civilization, from climate change, from the collapse. And second, it's not too late. Why prepare yourself for a catastrophe you won't survive, at least not in the way you'd want to live, instead of preventing that outcome or at least mitigating its worst effects right now? Now, you can't go it alone. You will not make it. (laughs) Being human is a team sport. So take less, circulate more, and the outcomes you're imagining need not turn into realities. And what does any of this matter to those of us who can't even consider buying land in New Zealand in Anchorage or staffing our outposts with robot security forces? Because the people who are in a position to act on these impulses currently control a vast majority of the world's capital. They have hoarded the planet's value, bought the land from under our feet, mismanaged the administration of our economy, and are now hoarding even more in order to defend themselves from the rest of us when things go south. 
and know they are not the enemy. They're just scared humans. The enemy is the extractive system they can't see beyond, the zero-sum game they use to understand the human project, and the way that zero-sum mentality trickles down to you and me. There are much weirder, more loving, and more cooperative ways of understanding the human project. And one of my very best teachers in this regard is EFF founder, fringeware editor, web developer, and cyberpunk hero, John Lipkowski. So, John Lukowski, I was first exposed to your work in the very early 90s. I had knew about, I guess, you know, reality hackers a little bit, but the first time when my countercultural fringe urges seemed to be merged with technology was in your zine, Fringeware, out of Austin. Tell me maybe just a little bit about how, how was it that you saw this confluence between the dry pocket protector computer people and the expansion of human consciousness and society and culture? Well, that's an interesting question. I didn't really, I knew computer people and they tended not to be dry pocket protector types of guys. Um, I had joined The Well, and I know you remember The Well too, the online community. And in that community, I met Mark Frauenfelder. So Mark Frauenfelder, definitely not a dry pocket protector kind of guy, was publishing a zine called Boing Boing, which has gone on to become a fairly well-known uh, blog and part of the internet. And he asked me to be an associate editor, so I sort of got into the zine thing through working with Mark and also another guy named Mike Gunderloy who had a, uh, a sort of zine index that he published called Fact Sheet 5. Right. So I was working for both of those zine guys pretty much pro bono, just kind of Well, there was fun. no money in these things. Yeah, it was the avocational, yeah. right. In the midst of all this, um, I came across the name of a guy, Paco Nathan, who it turned out lived in Austin. And Paco is kind of a genius programmer. He was like a neural net guy. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was based in Austin and, and was associated with Boing Boing and also with Mondo 2000. And Paco, uh, Paco and I, once we learned that we were both in Austin, decided to meet and hang out. The, the kinds of people we knew were a sort of blend of what you were talking about. We knew computer people and we knew like consciousness hacker kind of people. I personally was influenced quite a bit by many years of reading Coevolution Quarterly and, you know, just the whole earth ethos, all of those mm -hmm. people and publications I had followed pretty closely. And that tended to really stretch my brain quite a bit. And what we realized 
as we came together and started talking about it, a couple of things. One was that all over the country and all over the world, really, there are like fringe-focused kind of people like we were, who were into things that were really not in the mainstream, but were very interesting and word-of-mouthy kind of stuff. You know, you, you didn't find out about it by reading Time or Newsweek. You found out about it by hearing about it from somebody you knew, usually. And, you know, some of it was just stuff that people just kind of dreamed up, you know. There were a lot of dreamers around, too. And with the Internet, these people were coming online. And you could reach, you could reach these people. So people who had been isolated in communities where there was nobody else like them suddenly found others like them, and they found them through the Internet. And then we also realized that there were a lot of people that we just knew of who had product ideas and things that they wanted to, to build and sell, and they really couldn't get them to the marketplace in any realistic way. Uh, if it was a piece of software, it would cost you, I think what we were figuring back then, you'd have to spend $50,000 just to get your thing into Egghead, Egghead software. Right. And it was probably even more than that. It would be a lot of money, a lot of investment, so you'd have to go out and, you know, you'd have to build your company and raise financing. But these would be like a guy who puts together a piece of software on his own. So we said, well, we ought, we ought to find a way to, to sell these things online to people. And we started an email list with the intention of initially bringing people onto the list that had products to sell and also bringing in potential customers. So really, we were also thinking of building a, a community for what we were going to do. The idea was that we would do commerce in a community, and it was like the Agora, you know, it was like the bazaar. It was right. like a marketplace in, in, a, in an old sense of the marketplace, that you're building a marketplace for a community, and in this case, it's for a virtual community. So we were doing several things there. We were cultivating community. We were facilitating a number of memes, you know, that were sort of fringy, edgy memes. Right, like smart drugs was one of them. Sure. And uh, uh, certain, not even uh, psychedelic things as much as kind of designer reality stuff that I picked up on in Siberia. Yeah, and you know, for example, um, well, I haven't talked about Fringeware Review yet. You mentioned the magazine. So Fringeware Review, uh, we created. Initially, we were, when we found that we couldn't sell things online, we thought, well, we'll have to do mail order. We'll need to just create a catalog and get it out. But then we, as we thought more about it, it says, why just do a catalog? Why don't we do a magazine? We're zine guys. And we had been writing for zines, so why couldn't we just create a zine of our own and just put the catalog in the back of the zine. Like, uh, you ever read Famous Monsters of Film yeah, Land yeah, when you were a kid? Yeah, I was thinking that. So remember, they had that yeah. catalog in the back. So I was an old Famous Monsters yeah. guy. So I thought, well, we'll just do it like that. So we did that. We, uh, and Paco learned, uh, like I say, he was a brilliant guy. He learned everything you needed to know to figure out how to lay out a magazine on the Mac. And we created a pretty nice looking magazine. Um, I was going to tell of, you as fans of Fringeware, though, included like, uh, well, a lot of Austin persons, like Rick Linkletter, uh, 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 Mike Judge, um, the, the, 
You know, I wouldn't know my judge. Yeah, was, oh. there was, this was the that's, Austin. That's good. Yeah. Did we influence Silicon Valley? I'm sure. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were aware that we had uh, a lot of readers. And uh, we also knew a lot of people who could write and who had great ideas and uh, were willing to write for, you know, what we were paying. We were paying everybody who wrote for us, uh, which was kind of unusual in the zine world. But we felt that we should do that. But we weren't paying them much. Right. It was just a little bit. But we knew a lot of people. We so think. it seemed, right, and people like me got interested in the Internet because it seemed to be connecting people in different ways, offering new ways of thinking about the world. It expanded consciousness. It, it forced questions about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to extend our humanity? What is autonomy? And then it sort of took a right turn, I would say. Well, I want to add one more thing yeah. to that. Um, you could experiment with identity online. You could assign yourself right. a different identity online and in, in virtual realities and virtual right. games and muds and moves and all those kinds of places. You know, right. it, it was you became really, really plastic, you know, you yeah. could kind of I mean, that's why yourself. when I wrote, tried to write about it, I ended up talking more to uh, fantasy role-playing people because they seem to have the most experience in, oh, I'm going to try on what it's like to be a woman or a yeah. fighter yeah. or an elf or whatever. And that's still there, you right. know, and, and pretty sophisticated now. I mean, you have all kinds of uh, virtual like realities and games a... and that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, people are, got... people are now finding out how to be a Nazi without That's the thing. It's gotten virtual. more concrete again. <laughs> I mean, part of that, the part of the problem with that is now that you've got verifiable identity online, which you would think would be a good thing, it kind of locks you into one being one person on the net rather than... Well, there were always advantages in, in having a, a fixed accountable identity. The well always saw that as, as important to yeah. their system. And the well would let you use, you could like dream up a handle for yourself and you could give yourself different handles in different forums that you were in. But uh, at the same time, uh, they always showed who you really were and, and people could trace things back to you. Right, and which that is made what you I more accountable thought, for yourself. Yeah, that's what I always thought, you know, that the phrase, you own your own words, I always took it to, I didn't think about IP and ownership. You know, you, you own your own words as the theme of the place meant you're responsible for what you say. Well, I wrote an article about that one time um, and talked to Stuart Brand about what he meant when he said it. Right. And he said, he said, yeah, I think it's really weird that people think I was talking about ownership in that sense. I meant own as in the sense of being responsible for. Oh, he did? For. Yeah. 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 In fact, I think they may have add that, added that to the yo-yao message. The oh, really? You are responsible thing. for what you say yeah. or something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. So Stuart Brand clearly meant what you thought it was intended to mean. Right, that and, these um, are rules for how we're going to interact in this new realm. Because we can't see our faces, we can't look in each other's eyes. You know, it was almost Talmudic in a way of saying, which rabbi said this? Which rabbi said that? And, and you know, the, the question was in, on the well and in other online communities, how can we facilitate free speech as free as you can possibly make it and at the same time uh, keep flame wars from breaking out and, and, and have people be basically honest with each other? You may not be honest in the sense that you're presenting the identity that you present in day to day, but that's not necessarily dishonest because we all have different identities. You know, we all have 
we all have a lot of thoughts in our head and things shift around and we feel different ways in different contexts and that sort of thing. So it can make sense to have a different identity online, but that identity should have a, um, uh, an integrity to it. Right. Because it's fair, fair enough that I could be in one, and it's not even like I'm role playing, but in one topic on the well or one Usenet group, I might be promoting really anarchist, bizarre lefty ideas. And in another group of people, I'm arguing from a conservative perspective. But that's because if I'm going to be in a Marxist group, I'm going to want to counter their Marxism with, well, what about ownership? What about capital? What about this? And if I'm going to be with a bunch of bankers, then I'm going to take yeah. another position. It's all me. And it's not like, I mean, but that's the other thing, that the online space was a place where I was delightfully inconsistent because I was just trying on sure, yeah. ways. Now I feel like maybe it's because I'm now a professional writer or something as if anything I say is a liability. Oh, well, Rushkoff says this. It's like, well, it's yeah, true. I, I said mean, that. You're, you know, you're established in an identity now that uh, can't be as fluid because you're known. You're a known person and people, you know, you've written things, they're public. People just sort of know this is Doug Rushkoff. This is what he represents. You know, he, and you know, in fact, you like any human being, you've grown and you've changed. And and if you go back and read all your books, if people went back and read all your books, they would see that they're that you weren't always the same person. In right. Book. I mean, but it's not just you know me that because I got some level of of fame or publishing. I feel like it's also the medium. That the medium, when the, the moments that you're talking about, these fringeware moments where there's the well and Usenet and conversations, that there was a lot of what if going on. And when I look at the current, even the most fluid spaces, say uh, medium, it's really hard. Someone can't write a what if article. You can't pose something because now you'll be accused of, oh no, now you're sexist or racist or, or communist or capitalist. Just yeah. by saying, well, what if we had universal basic income? Or what if we did this? It doesn't mean I believe universal basic income works, but I, we need to have this conversation. What if? Yeah, I mean, we probably need to um, figure out how to open people up a little bit to exploration and investigation, uh, which is harder and harder to do. And we're in a marketing context now. Right. We're, not in a, we're not in a conversational context. We have conversations, but really... Uh, the role of the internet uh, has increasingly become to sell us stuff, you know, uh, not necessarily to sell us physical things for money, but also to sell us ideas for adherence or whatever, you know. It's like yeah. uh, I, I watched how the Trump people used the internet, and, you know, they were kind of clueless at first, but apparently they got the right combination of people to to get really smart about the way that they use the internet. And, uh, and you could see a, a real change in his, I guess the word is popularity. I mean, you could see that he, he was starting to become more and more viable. The internet, I think, was huge in, in getting him elected, just like it was huge in getting Obama elected. In different stages of the internet, of course. But it is interesting, if you, if you look at the evolution of internet candidates, from Howard Dean, who used it mainly for fundraising, I guess, to Obama. That was his biggest success yeah. was in fundraising. Who, yeah. To Obama, who used it 
for kind of meetups and social gathering to Trump who used it for uh, uh, Twitter really and uh, viral uh, amplification, we also can see kind of the devolution of, of the net on a certain level so that what, what looked like it was going to it sort of increase connectivity and thought and local realities has ended up turning into, well, a marketing platform, a, 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 well, a also, meme platform. Also a, a platform for propaganda. And, you know, this idea of fake news really emerges from the idea right. of propaganda. And, you know, you have propagandists accusing news people of spreading propaganda, and you also have... Right. You know, propagandists accusing propagandists of being propagandists, which is probably right. And accurate. it happens to TV because TV is trying to keep up with the news cycle of the internet, which it can't do. I mean, no more than it could keep up with the twenty-four-seven CNN news cycle of cable TV. So you, but we saw this. We saw this coming. We did. Um, and you know, after years of evangelizing for the internet, it was there was. There were uh oh moments. I'm sure you had those. Yeah, too, and then say. people say, "Oh no, now you don't." I thought you liked technology. Now you don't. It's like I love technology. I hate what we're doing with it. You know, which is sort of a different question. Well, you know, it's just like you can use a shovel to dig a hole, and you can use it to bash somebody's head in. Right. So, unfortunately, the internet is being used in ways that were not the best use that we could have envisioned, right. and that we sort of naively expected. We, we really kind of didn't realize what was going to happen to it. And when we started seeing the marketing people come into it and take ownership of it, it was kind of like a scary moment. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't really think about it. And then you realize, I mean, this whole idea of social media, using social with media, it's like acknowledging that. So advertisers traditionally use media yeah. to advertise. They put their advertisements on media. Yeah. And the marketing people invented that term social media. Well, actually, and they, that, believe it or not, I actually No, invented you invented the term. I okay. did. I put the word social media together, but I didn't mean that. I put the word social media together right after the dot-com crash. Well, let me say I was they like, adopted don't worry. it. They adopted yeah. it readily. And they co-opted it, really. Because what they were looking for different. is they were trying to figure out, they were in a space where they could see this fragmentation of attention. Right. And they wanted to figure out how they could get attention to cohere again and put their messages on it. So they took this new category of media and started, you know, working with it. Well, they turned social conversations into marketing conversations. I, I don't know how strategic they were or whether this was an intention, but what has happened now is that the place where most people go online, people go to Facebook. And Facebook is a place that coheres people and you can feed them marketing messages through Facebook. Right. And um, it's not, this is not really, though, a best use of the internet to get a bunch of people all on this one platform that's really a corporate platform. And, uh, you know, as, as Sterling famously said, uh, the people are the product and it's really like a bunch of cattle. Yeah, well, and the, the odd thing was that the way most of America originally got online was AOL this sort of walled garden thing, and then we find the real internet, and now they're going back to a platform without realizing it's a platform and not the net. But there's hope. There's an indie web movement. They've been mostly focused apparently on, on technical people to get technical people more and more involved, to get tools built out and so forth, and now 
the hope is that that will mainstream somewhat and that more and more people will uh, remove themselves from Facebook and Twitter and try these alternatives. Right, like you see uh, uh, Neo Cities, have you seen that one? It's interesting. Uh, just a young guy in uh, Portland set it up. It's remember GeoCities in the old days was for people to make their own web pages. So NeoCities is a way to make simple open web uh, web pages again, and rather than have them be these cookie cutter. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, this whole indie web movement I think is very promising. But you know, it's. I mean, the question for me comes down. to... I don't know you, if it's a solution. When you talked before, you you said that we were naive, you know, to think that the internet would be the, this wonderful, open, uh, fringy, countercultural place where people are going to talk and connect and all. Yeah, I use I that mean, word naive because I didn't want to say we were stupid. Yeah, but naive, stupid, the, we were only, the, the degree of our naivete can only be measured against whether the internet and digital technology is biased towards this awful extractive capitalism or whether it's biased towards the social connectivity and mind expansion that we're talking about. So I grew up believing that the net and computers and BASIC and COBOL and Pascal, that these were all extensions of my nervous system, of my cognition, ways of thinking bigger thoughts and connecting to other people. The the wired guys and the venture capitalists do not. They don't think that the net really offers a renaissance in human awareness. They think it's, they have a reactionary approach to it. I don't think that it. was true. It's an, of, it's an amplification of I don't the think same that old was true usual. true of the original wire, wired guys, though. I mean, well, like Kevin Kelly was there and so forth. Some of them, yeah. But, you know, you know Leo Frasetto was a, basically said the internet's a tsunami. It's going to come running over your business and you better read our pages yeah, or you're going to fall behind. Good. Yeah. Well, the internet is a lot of things, right? I mean, right. But, but what really transformed it was money came into the picture. And corrupted it the way it does anything. Because it, it, that's the well, thing. Well, we and sort of felt, even... you, you remember what John Gilmore always talked about, about censorship. He'd say the internet interprets it as damage and routes around it. And we kind of thought the internet will route around anything, including you know, yeah. a, a, a complete, but yeah, the but internet it was digital off. convergence is what, yeah. so digital convergence, which I was really high about, and, and, you know, I was with a group here that was really promoting digital convergence and so forth, and uh, again, I was naive, I, I didn't really realize that digital convergence really meant that all media were going to be on the network. It's not even, it's not right. really like the old internet was either, it's not like a network of networks, you know, you have these dominant backbone providers and that sort of thing. And, and look how much of it is Netflix or Amazon. It's really a way to channel media to people. And media is being channeled to people for money. And a lot of it has advertising yeah. on it or you're paying something for it. Or it's it. TV. The net became It became television. television. But that's not inherently pervasively the case. There's still people doing weird little interesting right. things on it, but it's harder and harder to find. It's funny, that's why back when, when people were talking about um, technology development and all, I, I used to say, I think we should stay with these 8088 chips. I think we should stay with 288 baud, B 
because that's going to preserve this sort of text-based, I mean, it's a very Jewish idea, you know, text-based, no pictures, no video, you know, that keep it low, keep it uh, at a low level of, of, of fidelity or whatever, uh, a low bandwidth, and also so that the developing nations could catch up. Of course, it turned out economically I was wrong. Developing nations only caught up when uh, smartphones became, you know, cheap enough for them to use, not... Uh, you know, Tandy <laughs> computers became distributed enough. Well, I mean, I think the the challenge for us now is the bigger challenge that you're talking about, like the operating system for the reality that we're in and its financial underpinnings and that sort of thing, and kind of the way the assumptions that people have. We need to start challenging. So in my life, what am I doing? Um, I used to think about doing all kinds of like big things or like I was going to get part be part of some political thing or are you serious and I tried to start an open source party right. things like that but what I realized and they've now done it successfully is, in Europe a couple of yeah, similar yeah. And efforts there, yeah. something like that will probably work eventually but you know as I mean it's a lot of work and it takes a, a lot of of uh, collaboration the revolutionary thing that I can do personally in my life now, I'm doing. You had a business. So I was an internet guy, and you know, I did interesting things a lot that didn't put any bread on the table. To put bread on the table, I, mean, I went through a period where I worked with Whole Foods Market building an e-commerce thing for them back in the 90s, uh, which didn't last past the dot-com bust. But I learned web development, and I've been in web development ever since. And uh, eventually I found myself as a sole proprietor working with contractors with a web development company. And, you know, doing okay, you know, putting bread on the table. And then uh, we all started talking about a way that we could work together more tightly than just them being contractors. And I got a bunch of 1099 guys who I really like and I keep working with them. What could we do? Should we have a partnership? And uh, one of the guys was a member of the Gaia, Gaia Host Collective. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, why don't we have a co-op? And I said, of course, because I've always, I've always favored co-ops. I've always thought collective ownership was, was the right thing to do. But now I understand that it's, that's where the revolution is. And forming a co-op is a way to build your business as a kind of community and to put the people first. That's the thing. People should come first. The thing that you're doing, the work that you're doing uh, is secondary. It's just there as a means to, um, to an end and that end is to make everybody okay in your community. So it's not like you just hire people and fire people yeah. and do all that stuff, but you build, you bring people in who feel right and, and you build this thing. Um, I think the cooperative movement which which has some life now and and is happening I know you know that the real interesting challenge right now is to figure out whether we can build cooperatives that will scale you know Mondragon you mentioned earlier right. today I mean and Mondragon doesn't really scale I mean it scales and it doesn't it's Mondragon is a whole lot of yeah, smaller cooperatives well clusters. what happens is that yeah. when a community gets to a certain size it just breaks into clusters and we're thinking about that so the business I have is a services company that doesn't have to be really big, you know, so we're probably not going to scale, but we're starting another cooperative that is going to be a platform cooperative. Mm -hmm. 
And platform co-ops inherently have the potential to scale big. There's a political challenge here, or it's similar to the political challenge of democracy. Democracy is really, really hard, really hard to, to, to do effectively, especially at scale, and especially right. where, where there's diversity. So the same thing is gonna be true of building democratic workplaces at scale with diverse people involved. Because when you have diverse, diversity of, of the people involved, and by diversity, I don't mean diversity in the sense of like racial diversity or whatever, like what people often mean, like bringing men, women, people of different races, but more like cultural diversity, people who come from different mindsets and approaches that are hard to get to cohere because they think so differently about right. things. I want to see those people come together and work together in a business that they all have ownership of and that they all have responsibility for, that sense of ownership. Right. And because many, many times the things that they are differing on so ardently are really just artifacts of some other system anyway. So we're living under capitalism and it's like, okay, so we have these big profound disagreements, but what do we want? We, we know we want homes, we know we want food, and we like this company that we're gonna work for. So all of a sudden, all of the things that we disagree about are kind of obsolete. Yeah, and one of the best things you ever put me on to, uh, you introduced me to Ben Knight uh, and, and Lumio. Uh -huh. And Lumio is actually the best instance. I, really, I haven't seen anybody do anything as well as they've done here for facilitating consensus. It's, it's a tool, an online tool that facilitates consensus. Right, using the General Assembly model from Occupy yeah. Movement. Yeah, we just need to, we need to build those kinds of tools and use that tool and those kinds of tools to form consensus at scale and get away from partisanship, polarization, yeah. competitive. But that's, but that's because, I mean, when you're, when you're working to build consensus, it's because you're no longer in a winner-takes-all uh, mindset because now you don't have an agreement that half the people won and half the people lost. Now it's consensus, so everybody's kind of happy. But that's also what the internet seemed to be promising. So we used to live in a television era where we all listen and they all talk. You know, we just received only, so it was split. You know, and if you got to be in the tube as the talker, then you're the winner. And if you're one of the receivers out in the world, you're sort of, you're on the other side anyway. If you're not the loser, you're certainly the passive party. The internet started to tilt it so everybody was a producer and consumer of everything else. It created this horizontal well, structure. Well, that's because we created in the context of the operating system you've been talking about that, that operates that way. And inherently, you know, we had, the internet started to adapt to the context it was in. And I think that's one of the difficulties. We were, we, you know, it's I like- I mean, it, it adapted to the top-down capital context instead of this social lateral one that it was built in. During. One, of, one of the challenges of, of cooperativism is you bring people in who, whose whole worldview and, and uh, mindset uh, evolved within that context and you're trying to bring them into a different context and change it. And you'll get people who are open to that and malleable, but there are a lot of people in this world who would rather just be competitive and make a bunch of money 
and who kind of like the way the operating system is, especially as long as they're winning within that operating system. Right, and if they're winning, then they believe they're winning because of their merit rather than anything else. But, you know, I think that the most revolutionary thing that people like me can do who are, are interested in building these democratic workplaces and sort of like getting into a situation that raises everybody up, the most revolutionary thing we can do is to build those things and be successful with them and be successful with them in terms that well, to actually to actually make enough money that everybody on board is okay and you know to kind of thrive as a company. Well, and then and then you set an example. I mean, even if they're not successful in the traditional capitalist ways that people aren't sitting with fat bank accounts, you see, look at those people over there. They're all eating well, they're living well, they're enjoying themselves, they're smiling. How do I get me some of that? Yeah, yeah. and it's a way to sort of prove the triple bottom line, you know, right. versus just talking about it. I mean, if you take a, a company that's, that's not a co-op, that's totally like a top-down hierarchical thing and say, well, we're going to... We're, we're going to start thinking about the triple bottom line here. It's really hard to shift gears there unless you do this other thing, which is bring people in more and more into the governance and also into the, the profitability of the, of the endeavor, you know? So, so that's the thing about co-ops is that people who come in as members have a say in governance and they participate in profits. And uh, when I was a little kid, I, I used to wonder why why the people who worked at companies didn't own the company or have some part of the company. It just seemed weird to me. And I haven't really changed. It seems weird to me. that, But I understand. I mean, I totally understand now how the, they're that employees. part of the world that was, works. Yeah, I mean, that's what I always talk. It's what started in around 1300 with the chartered monopoly. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's actually sort of a form of slavery, but really a benign form. You know? It is though, you're selling your time rather than selling the value that you've created. Yeah, I mean the difference is that the person that you're working for doesn't own you 100%, but they do own that part of you that they're buying. You know? Well, they own you for that hour. So I mean, you I used get to, to work practice slavery. I used to work as a proofreader in a place where they were really nice people, but you know, when they bought your time, they expected you to be you know, doing your work and yeah. doing it 100% of the time and all that. And if he caught me, I remember one time the guy caught me talking to somebody else who worked there. And uh, the next thing I knew, there was a pile of stuff to be proofread on my desk about three feet high. Um, he was sending me a message. He was yeah. saying, don't go talking to people. Work. Yeah. You know? well, that's why I always liked writing. I mean, that's why I picked it as my original profession was because at least I'm being paid by the word. I know I'm making this, it's yeah. almost like little... Well, you're working for yourself. You yeah. don't work for somebody else. Some all people working just can't for make yourself, that work. All working for yourself means is on your own time. You know, you're still work. I'm still working for the man. I'm still writing a book for Murdoch or somebody, or at least I used to be. Uh, you know, now I'm working for a co-op. Norton, W.W. Uh, Norton's doing my next book, and they're actually a co-op. They're owned by the editor, so I love the... The idea, they pay a smaller advance as a result because it's their own money, but it's a, it's a better feeling. I'm trying to think about how that goes. So with the co-op, with my co-op, we're working because we're responsible and not because somebody's telling us to do something. We, we see what has to be done and we do it. Nobody is like, 
there's no coercion to do anything. Right, right? it's more of a holacracy. Yeah. yeah. So the thing, the thing I want to get to, though, that's interesting to me here is um, there were these initially weird values and ideas that those of us on the net and the early cyber counterculture were, were espousing and hoping for. We're still around today, but with the experience of 20 or 30 years of the net, we're coming back with much more uh, political and economic and rigorous understanding of what it was we were fighting for. Because we weren't just fighting for the fantasy role-playing quality of the net. We just didn't know that the fantasy role-playing quality of the net had to do more with a sense of identity. We, we, were, we wanted to have a shareware universe where we played with each other's wares, and we realized, oh, that's platform cooperatives and another economic model. Yeah. So do you see a, a resurgence, in a sense, a resurgence, a resurgence of the weird, wonderful, uh, uh, egalitarian, evolutionary uh, optimism of the early net in these more almost serious challenges that the counterculture is now making to business as usual online? Well, you know, you were talking about what we were fighting for, and I guess what I, what I would like to see and what I, I kind of think I'm seeing is it's more evolutionary than confrontational. I mean, we're in a tough time now because somebody has sort of seized controls of the ship and it feels like it's not being steered very well. It's sort of like you're on the deck of the Titanic and you see the iceberg coming and the captain is just doing this, you know, he's just kind of laughing and cackling and heading right for the iceberg and you say, wait a minute, <laughs> this is going to be bad. So that kind of makes you feel like maybe you have to be confrontational. If, if we can figure out a way to do this, I mean, it's sort of like civil rights, Martin Luther King, or Gandhi before him, influencing him, they used peaceful forms of challenge in order to try to get things to change, and they were pretty successful. So, you know, in closing, and, and, and to this theme of uh, the, the weirdness, you know, those of us who are weird, Wait, not are even, you weird? Yeah. I mean, the, the, weird, the fun, weird, mutant people, um, many of whom are Team Human members, and, or at least many Team Human members are fun, weird, uh, uh, mutant people, we found in the net a place to express and potentially build this culture and all. Things got more serious. We're returning to the table now as more educated, thoughtful, rigorous people because we understand that the underlying reasons for weirdness and anomaly are actually crucial to the survival of our of our species and the planet. It's biodiversity. It's what we are. But where do you see now in culture or society or around, where do you see the pockets of weird? Where can we get that it's spiritual, cultural recharge. Where oh, are Austin's people full of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a bunch of, there's Austin, there's San Francisco, Well, there's I mean, Portland. if not places, even. So, so but, but really, I think a lot of people have sort of fled to those places uh, where that kind of diversity is tolerated. And so you think, it's, you did know, you look at it And where they can find other people like that. I mean, I, I talked earlier about how 
there were people all over the country who they didn't, may not have even known that there were people around that were as weird as they were until they got online and started meeting those people. Right, my neighbors are strange We've been as online me. like yeah. that, doing that for a long time, and said, oh, well, there's a lot of weird people in Portland that are just like me. They're just as weird as I am. I'm going to Portland. So I think what we've had is we've had a, a lot of people who've moved to places where they can find other people like them because it's really not enough just to hang out online. You know, you, you, it was like you and I are good friends and we really like to see each other. We hardly ever do because you're in New York and I'm in Texas. You know, what if we could hang out together? Well, maybe I moved to New York or you moved to Austin, you know? I mean, people will, I, people are starting to congregate in places where they can find other people like that. And, and Austin's a place certainly like that because, I mean, we actually have a slogan for Austin, it's keep Austin weird. You know, and, and Keep Austin Weird became a slogan because there was a situation where a, I think it was when Whole Foods was building their new store and they were going to lease part of it to Borders. And, I, and it was like, well, wait a minute. Why put a chain in there? There's a really good bookstore right next to you called, you know, Book People. And there's a really good record store, Waterloo. They're in that same area. Why are you going to bring in a chain store that's not even owned here in Austin, you know, the extractive thing that, you were, yeah. that you've talked about a lot. So the way that people challenge that was they say, we don't want Austin to become like every place else. We want it to stay just as weird as it is. So keep Austin weird. T-shirts, keep Austin weird, bumper stickers, you know, all over the place. But really, there's a lot of weirdness in Austin. Artists can come here and feel comfortable uh, and even make a living. You know, I know artists here who make a living. And, you know, you can see all kinds of weird cultural things. I moved to Colorado for a while, and, and uh, you know, I was living in Boulder, and Boulder was really cool uh, in a lot of ways, and you could, like, go climbing around the mountains and things like that. But I had, culturally, I was kind of bored, you know. Uh, I missed Austin, so I came back here. But then there's a lot of people who go to Boulder because they want to be walking the trails and well, things like that. Well, they get their weird, and they get Buddhists. And, That's their you weird know, thing, and, yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, I guess part of your advice then is that, you know, the, you look for weird in the real world. Even if you're not going to move, you know, from one city to another, find the, the weird I, neighborhood. Do I find the weird block? Find the weird You still humans. find them online, but, uh, and you know, actually, you're face, find Facebook them. groups. Facebook groups. Yeah. There's a bunch of really weird Facebook groups. But you're going to find people weird people. Out. I mean, I would think you might not be able to move to Austin, but you could find the Austin in Cincinnati, the Austin in Detroit. I mean, you're going to find... There's going to be a nook and cranny of weird people. If you find the others... Yeah, I don't think that you can just go to Facebook and have that conversation and have it gel into anything. But it, it, it's, it's very possible that things will emerge from that. Just like, I mean, people say that Occupy failed, but I see signs of Occupy all over the place. Mm -hmm. Stuff came out of Occupy that has continued to persist. So it really wasn't that it failed. It was just that it spun off into all kinds of endeavors. Right, you know? it it mutated into something else, and it didn't need doesn't need credit for all the forms that it that it spawned. And we and we really ought to give a shout out to those people in New Zealand because some of the some of the smartest We've had a bunch outside of inspiral thinkers, people, yeah, yeah, those people are great. And and I met them. I guess I first met them through your contact conference. Right. And and then you know you introduced me to Ben, and I followed up and looked at Lumio and. 
Uh, I've been slow to adopt Lumio, but uh, now I think we're going to start using it in a big way. Oh, great. And Lumio is really a powerful platform for collaboration. Yeah, even for people who are living in the same place, sometimes it's a, yeah. an easy way to, to put that together. Well, uh, it, it's, uh, it's always good to come to Austin. It feels like setting my feet down. There's a few places in the world that have that, that sense. I mean, especially when there's not friggin' South by Southwest happening, oh, and yeah. Austin can be here instead of that thing. Yeah, it but, becomes a little different city during South by Southwest. Yeah. But uh, so, so thank you. I mean, thanks for, for your many decades of, uh, of, of promoting, you know, what, what I call the weird, but it's really, it, or, or we would call the fringe, but it's not really just the fringe. It's, it's a matter of consistently kneading, the, kneading the, the dough and folding those fringes back into the center, you know, where, uh, where they can, they, they can uh, facilitate uh, strange things and new growth and the kind of mutation that we need to keep this thing going. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon, which will get you access to the conversations on our Slack channel where we discuss the ideas on the show, suggestions for guests, and where we want this whole thing to go. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. 